Hey, good morning, church. Uh, hey, we are engaged in studying uh, the book of Ruth uh, over the next month. It is a incredible, great, short, deep little book. Last week, Rev gave an overview of uh, this wonderful book, and uh, for the next four weeks, we will be walking through the four chapters of Ruth. Um, now, typically, when we read scripture together, it appears on the screens. <clears throat> there will be no scripture on the screens this morning, although you will hear with your ears uh, all of Ruth chapter 1. My intention is to um, approach the sermon like the telling of a story and to put you in the seats of those who maybe first heard this story 3,000 years ago, who experienced it through their ears rather than through their eyeballs. With me? So I'm calling upon your active imagining, imaginative listening this morning. Uh, some of the best insights and uh, mental pictures that you will hear today come from a recent wonderful book called The Gospel of Ruth by Carolyn Custis James. Now, church, this is a true story. Back in the times of the judges, when Israel had no king and everyone just did as they saw fit. The Lord sent a famine on the land of Israel. Now there was a man from Bethlehem in Judah, and together with his wife and two sons, they went for a while to live in the country of Moab. Now this was a journey of only about 40 miles up north around the Dead Sea over some mountains, but culturally it was a world away. I mean, the distance is the equivalent of if you started walking from the Loop downtown and walked around uh, the southern edge of Lake Michigan to Valparaiso, that's about the distance, but a world away. Different language, different work, different gods, a different way of life. Now, this man's name was Elimelech, and his wife was called Naomi. The names of their sons were Mahlon and Kilion. They left the barrenness and dryness of Bethlehem and famine for the full green fields of Moab. This is a picture of those fields. It's about as flat as western Illinois. But in harvest time, as fruitful and green and fertile. The rain didn't stop coming there. Now Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died there in Moab, and he left her a widow with two sons. In time, these sons married Moabite women. These women were Gentiles, non-Jews, foreigners who worshipped the god Chemosh, who was a dark and demanding foreign deity. And after about ten years in Moab, both Mahlon and Kilion also died, and Naomi was left with her t without her two sons, nor husband. Now we need to recognize, sitting here 3,000 years later, that for a Middle Eastern woman that long ago in a male-dominated society to lose her husband and sons and the possibility of future heirs was not only the greatest of personal losses, but was total and devastating economic ruin and personal 
tragedy on every level. Naomi, through these losses, believes that God has turned his back on her. She is ruined. Naomi is now permanently dressed in black, black robes, black veil, and she is crying bitter tears. She has no prospects in this foreign land. As sympathetic listeners, we naturally wonder, what will become of Naomi? But the real question for the audience 3,000 years ago would have been something like this. What will become of this family? Or in particular, who will save the name of Elimelech? Folks 3,000 years ago didn't sit around as young people worrying, where should I go to college? What will my career be? What's my larger purpose in life? Folks 3,000 years ago knew I'm going to be a farmer. I'm going to tend cattle. There were not that many options. But they were very, very concerned with this question. How will my family continue into future generations? How will the name of my fathers and mothers be shot like an arrow into a future that none of us will see? Who will save the name of Elimelech now that there's no hope of children? Or grandchildren. When faced with the difficult and brutal questions of human pain and sin and suffering, it is God's regular way of response to work through human hands and feet and arms. When God does something in the world, It is not typically through a voice from the sky or a note dropped out of heaven. It is typically through human hands and feet and arms, God's way of healing. Most regularly, human hands, feet, and arms, when it comes to forgiveness and redemption and being restored, it is typically that we experience God through human hands and feet. And arms, and as the story unfolds, please notice how God is going to use, in particular, the hands and feet and arms of his daughters, of his female servants in this story. We can rightly call them heroines, if you like. Now, there is um, a long and colorful history of heroic women in the Bible that goes all the way back to Mother Eve. See, at the very beginning, even in uh, a paradise, even in a perfect garden that had no sin, there was a problem. This makes my head hurt a little bit, by the way, that there's paradise and there's still a problem. God's way of naming this problem is, uh, it is not good for the man to be alone. Adam had the companionship of God, but he was still missing human hands and feet and arms. So God says, I will make a helper suitable for him. Do you know this verse? I mean, it's Genesis 2, not good for the man to be alone. I'll make a helper suitable for him. God's way of addressing Adam's loneliness is through the person of Eve. She was to be his helper But oh, how we've ruined this word, helper, particularly 
in the English language. When Santa is really busy in the lead up to Christmas, what does he need? Santa's little helper. When hamburger is boring and needs to be spiced up, what does it need? It just needs a little helping. Right on. When I pushed a tiny plastic lawnmower as a three-year-old next to my dad with a real lawnmower roaring beside me, he would congratulate me and pat me on his back for being daddy's big helper. I was of no help whatsoever. (laughs) Often when we use the word helper, it means the opposite. Adam needed help in the Garden of Eden the way our European allies needed help in World War II. Adam needed help in the Garden of Eden the way someone who's choking on a big piece of red meat needs help from somebody who knows the Heimlich. Like, this is the kind of help the Bible speaks of. It's a desperate, life and death, it makes all the difference in the world kind of help. The Hebrew word in Genesis chapter 2 that is translated as helper is the Hebrew word ezer. You're getting one Hebrew word a week around here. Last word, the word was for like loving kindness and steadfast love, chesed. This word, this, this week, the word is ezer, which does in fact mean huge help. Now in the Old Testament, there's lots of folks who have the name Ezra, Azariah, Azariah. It all means God is my helper. And in almost every time the word help is used, It is used of God himself. Rarely, only in a couple instances, does it describe human help because it's such a big, profound word. For example, Psalm 46. God is our refuge and our strength, an ever-present ezer or help in times of trouble. It is huge help. And when God makes Eve to be Adam's helper, it is giant ezer kind of help that God is giving in Adam's need. The term could fairly be translated warrior because when God helps, it's usually as a divine warrior or even in a human sense as hero. It is not good for the man to be alone Therefore, God says, I will make a warrior suitable for him. Like, girls, are you listening to this? Ladies, are you hearing this? This is the kind of heroic, feminine help that unfolds in the story of Ruth. God's feminine ideal is not for, oh, a little help here and there. It is for big-time, heroic sort of help. This is God's feminine ideal. Today on the stage of the Chicago Theater, uh, there are going to be men and women playing music together. Handel's Messiah telling the old, old story of Jesus and his love. We have little groups from this church in three different prisons, one in Louisiana, two in Illinois. Those groups are men and female, shoulder to shoulder, like bravely going into prisons, right? This is the way it's supposed to be. Back to the story. When news reached Moab that the famine in Israel had ended through the kindness of God and through the provision of rain, Naomi makes plans to return to Bethlehem 
where her family still owned their ancestral land. Now, Naomi could not till the field that had gone unplanted for more than a decade, but she was going home nonetheless. Now, this reality is only half a sentence in Ruth chapter 1, but notice that there is just a tiny glimmer of hope amidst all the pain and loss of Ruth chapter 1, and it ought not be missed. The drought is over. God has provided rain once again. Things are growing. You can go home. Naomi's daughter-in-laws, Ruth and Orpah by name, they make plans to go with her. For what prospects of companionship do they have apart from Naomi? As they set foot on the road back to Bethlehem, Naomi, in an act of sacrificial, others first kind of love, stops in her tracks and says to her daughter-in-laws, Go back. Go back, each of you, to your mother's home instead. And may the Lord show you kindness, just as you have shown kindness to the dead and to me. May the Lord grant that each of you will find rest in the home of another husband. And then she kissed them goodbye, and they all wept aloud and said to her, We will go back with you, Naomi. We'll go to your people. But Naomi rebuked them and said, Return home, my daughters. Why would you come with me? Am I going to have any more sons who could become your husbands? It's too late, my daughters. It is more bitter for me than for you. And here's the clincher line. Because the Lord has turned his hand against me. Orpah, full of common sense, goes back home to Moab, to her people, to her language, to her god at Shamosh, presumably to the arms of another man. But with her arms, Ruth chooses to cling to Naomi for all she's worth. And then Ruth demonstrates an even fiercer, more sacrificial Others first sort of love. Ruth says to her mother-in-law, don't urge me to leave you or turn back any longer. Where you go, Naomi, that's where I'm going. Where you stay, that's where I'm staying. Your people are now my people and your God, Yahweh, the God of Israel, that's my God. Where you die, I will die and be buried And may the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if anything except death separates the two of us. And then when Naomi realized that Ruth was determined to go with her, she relented and stopped urging her. Somebody should build a giant sign on the road between Moab and Bethlehem. Somebody should put up a banner over the road to mark the spot. Church, this is one of the crucial hinges in the story of God's plan to rescue not just the line of Elimelech, but all of us. This is God's part of God's plan A for saving the universe. 
No one knows where this went down. There is no spot marked in the road. The sands of history have covered it over. But what these two heroic women did, we are still experiencing the godly echoes of 3,000 years later. In this moment, Ruth is choosing pain over personal happiness. She is choosing a foreign land over her familiar home. She is choosing Naomi. She is choosing Yahweh. And in doing so, Ruth, the woman from Moab, demonstrates that she is part of the family of God, even though she is not a Jewess and has never set foot in the promised land. And in this moment, we see glimmer of hope number two. God's love and God's grace are incarnate in Ruth's hands and feet and arms. So these two women set out toward the fields of Bethlehem, reversing that earlier 40-mile trip north around the edge of the Dead Sea, the lowest spot on planet Earth, dry and hot and barren, even in the winter. And then they climb up, up toward Bethlehem. The fields there had been brown and fruitless when Naomi had last seen them. But now, as they crest the hill toward Bethlehem, they are green and bursting with new life. But Naomi... Naomi still carries the famine in her spirit. The field of her soul is parched and brittle and cracked. Days later, as the women enter Bethlehem town, the ladies of Bethlehem see Naomi who's maybe been gone a dozen years, and they start to ask, could this be Naomi? I mean, she looks 40 years older. She's dressed all in black. See how her her shoulders sag and slump, and then Naomi addresses the town. She says, don't call me Naomi anymore. Call me Mara, which means bitter, because the Almighty has made my life so very bitter. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi? The Lord has afflicted me. The Almighty himself has brought misfortune down on me. Naomi is angry because she knows. She knows God has forsaken her family. And the line of Elimelech is about to be wiped from the earth. Have you ever been there? Be so angry and frustrated at what's happened to you, so put out, maybe because you're innocent, so put out by what is happening to you, your circumstances, that you wonder, 
If God is there, or why God has seemingly turned his back on you and left you all alone, have you ever had the boldness to speak about God the way Naomi did? By the way, the Bible does not condemn her or judge her for this. But here's the thing about God. (laughs) If we can muster the courage to take a couple steps back from our circumstances and our life, here's the thing about God. It is God's desire never to waste one ounce of your pain. It is God's desire never to waste a bit of your loss, of your sin, of your suffering. Naomi can't see this yet, much less believe it. She can't yet see the glimmers of hope that are there, the green fields of Bethlehem, the love, the grace that's come miraculously through her relationship with Ruth. It's hard for Naomi or Mara or us to see the glimmers to feel the hope when we're in the midst of our battles. For the same reason, it's hard for us to hear the gentle whispers of God that are all around us. I mean, sometimes our own life is so loud and so close to us that we can't see or hear anything else. One of our problems is that we are obsessed with how things turn out with the way things are going to turn out. But God? God is obsessed and very much more concerned with how we are turning out. Do you feel the difference here? In our humanity, we can't help it. We just want to know how things are going to turn out. God is always working on us, on how we are going to turn out. In my younger uh, and more naive days, as a believer, as a Christian, I thought falsely that I would be able, if I was a good Christian boy, to go through long seasons where God's blessing was pretty much all there was. I mean, there might be a few blips on the radar here and there where I mess up or, you know, if somebody gets sick or, you know, accidents happen, short-term seasons of battling, but then those short-term battles would be eclipsed by long, awesome seasons of blessing. That is not how life works. If you've been told that, let me put that pile of rubbish to rest, please, today. As far as I can tell, what the scripture teaches us is that our lives are like a two-track path. And if we are walking with Jesus and following God, one of those tracks is very firmly and clearly the blessing of God. And the other one of those tracks is a path where we are simultaneously battling, where we are sinning or losing or experiencing sickness or affliction. As far as I can tell, moment by moment of my life, I am walking on both of those two tracks of the path 
toward God. If you are waiting for just the path of blessing, don't hold your breath. Because <laughs> it will get painful sooner rather than later. But here's the thing about God. In this life, even in this life, it is God's business and intention to slowly but surely take that root, that rut where we battle and to turn even that rut into something mysteriously and bittersweetly beautiful. I am not saying it's going to make sense. There are lots of things that don't make sense. But God is more than willing and has the courage and power to work with every bit of battling that goes on in that path and to recycle it beginning in this life and then in the next into something beautiful. We have been in the Old Testament. Do you see where I'm pointing right now? The ultimate battle that has ever been fought, the ultimate symbol of pain, of loss, of sickness, of death, of innocence, rejected, of humiliation, the proof of what I'm talking about is right there. God intends to take half of this two-track that we are all on in this life and turn it into something mysterious and bittersweetly beautiful. Church, we have only come one chapter into the awesome story of Ruth, the good news of Ruth. We are merely one leg, one quarter of the way through. I am inviting you to return for the next few weeks with open ears to hear. And I promise the goodness, the faithfulness, the kindness, the mercy, the courage, the chesed of God will be experienced as we experience his word for us. Amen. Will you pray with me? Lord God, uh, in our smallness, in our weakness, in our naivete, we would wish and pray and hope that life could be one blessing after another. But that is not the way your story goes in your word. That is not what our fathers and the mother of, in the faith lived. Please dispel these illusions from us. And in the midst of our battles and the inescapable blessings that you share with all of us. God, keep us aware and eager, listening to how you're working, transforming even the stuff of our life, even the stuff that is unbearably hurtful and painful. God, we trust you with all that we are. Where else could we go? In Jesus' name and for his sake we pray, and everybody said, Amen.